Hello listeners, welcome back to Founders Club Podcast. In this episode, my guest is Rich Robinson, seasoned advisor, entrepreneur, keynote speaker, professor, investor based in Beijing and Bali. Among different hats that Rich was wearing in his professional career, such as founder, senior executive, and also investor, but also board member, advisor, and mentor, Rich has been a traveler at heart, which we get to talk about it in our podcast. Rich is also uh, very active in the startup ecosystem in Asia and also globally, and he speaks frequently at conferences such as Web Summit Lisbon and Dublin, TechCrunch Beijing, Silicon Valley, Rise Hong Kong, and Tech in Asia. So please do enjoy this episode, share with your friends, and subscribe to Founders Club Podcast. Thank you. Uh, Rich, welcome to the Founders Club Podcast. Ciao, Giorgio. Good to be here. (laughs) Good to have you on. And we were talking a little bit about uh, working remotely. Mm. You just relocated from China to Bali. So how is going, how is going over there right now? <laughs> yeah, after 24 years to the day in the big smoke, the Middle Kingdom, um, we moved the whole family to Bali. What happened was we got stuck here during Chinese New Year. And we learned that the food coloring is in the swimming pool. The toothpaste is out of the tube and remote working is here to stay accelerated by COVID. So therefore, if you can work and live anywhere on planet earth, then we choose to live and work in the Northeast suburbs of Beijing. No, we don't. (laughs) Nobody does. I spent 20 years in Beijing, four years in Honkers. Nobody willingly lives in Beijing. I love Beijing, but uh, it's an acquired taste and definitely not optimized for lifestyle. Bali is eminently optimized for lifestyle. It's all about lifestyle. The weather, eight degrees south of the equator is amazing. The environment, the beaches, the mountains, the proximity to the other 17,000 islands in Indonesia, the internet access, the organic food, the amazing culture and people, the island of the gods. It's great. And I predict a lot more people will be optimizing for lifestyle and living remotely. Um, yeah, definitely. I am envious. I'm envious, but what you are describing right now, because obviously I'm in mm. right now and we're about probably to go in another lockdown and just mm. thinking about <laughs> the beaches and the good weather that you have there, I'm totally envious about. Yeah, I mean, Beijing, I was in lockdown for almost 20 years in Beijing because I had to go look at my app and be like, oh, is it fit for human habitation today? Can I go out and train for a marathon? Oh, no, the pollution is going to shave, you know, decades off my life. Or, you know, is it 40 plus degrees Celsius? Or is it negative 30 degrees Celsius? Or is it totally is there a sandstorm from you know the gobi desert or are there these puffs whatever right like beach is a i grew up in boston and it's a pretty it's kind of a, you know boston in the 70s and 80s a little tough and new england weather is tough but yeah beijing 
Beijing, I love you. Just like my wife would say, I love you. I don't like you very much, but I love you. So, <laughs> uh, what, another thing I'm uh, quite um, uh, fascinated about your uh, story and about your past. I did some research and prep for never it. convicted, never convicted. Never that's convicted. that's true. Never convicted yet. Let's <laughs> so let's this. see. Let's get that. It's an old uh, line from. Bill Murray from Stripes, I just had to say it whenever you say it. Right. And what I've noticed and what uh, fascinated about uh, your um, past experience is that you have a very rich, um, let's say, uh, a very rich experience in traveling and you've been traveling since since quite a few years. And what I wanted to ask is obviously you're an entrepreneur and we're going to talk about that as well, uh, is how much traveling influenced or shaped you as uh, an entrepreneur later on? Yeah, very deeply. I think it's something that uh, entrepreneurship is something that I knew that I wanted to pursue. Uh, but then I studied at Cambridge University and you know, I grew up in Boston in a very Italian neighborhood and I, you know, my grandparents are from Ireland. So it's full of like Italians and Irish intermarrying. So I always had that like connection back to Europe and I loved it. So I studied at Cambridge university in 88 and I backpacked around Europe and it was amazing. And um, I met this Aussie guy who had backpacked around the world for uh, at that point uh, four and a half years. And he was totally broke and he was doing it all by land. He said, there's just four, swaths of land, North, South America, Europe, Asia, Africa, and Australia. And he said, if you do that trip, you know, by land, those four swaths of land, you can see, feel, hear, but you can also smell the world, mate. And I was like, oh, I want to smell the world. So I went and I traveled, you know, I was a bartender in the Virgin Islands, ski bum in Switzerland, taught English in Prague after the revolution in the early 90s picked grapes in France, worked in a fishing village in Norway, worked at the BMW factory in Germany. And then I came to China by train. And a lot of it was kind of like, it wasn't vacation. It was like, it was gritty backpacking, sort of vagabonding. And uh, I think that comfort with discomfort, where you want to trade your comfort for access to adventure, right? The, the only difference between a nightmare an absolute nightmare situation and an adventure is just your angle, your perspective on us. And it's not much different from entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is a journey where the most likely, the very, very most likely outcome is failure. You're going to fail, right? That scene from the matrix, your men are already dead. Your startup is already dead as soon as you start it, more or less, right? You have to fight against all odds. And by the way, the journey along the way is pretty miserable. Like I think misery, I've, I haven't seen, I haven't seen that many people, I, I haven't seen as many people as miserable as I have entrepreneurs, right? It's just, it's Shujian as a male bava, right? So you're probably gonna fail and it's gonna suck along the way. So you better think like, this is an adventure not a nightmare, right? And to be able to cool, like eat bitter, as they say in Chinese, the better you get at that, then the better you can be like, hey, you wake up, it's all, you know, I took a, you know, I got stuck in the train station one night in Prague, right? Prosim Bozor, every 15 minutes, and you're like, oh my God, I can't sleep in the lights. And you're just like, you wake up and you're like, it's all still here, right? 
or you take a hard sleeper train or you end up getting stuck hitchhiking somewhere or you get sick in some, you know, in Mozambique and some border town like I have, you're just shivering and miserable. And then you wake up and you're like, it's all still here and I'm, I'm still alive and I'm still going. And like, that's, that's probably the number one quality of entrepreneurship um, is being relentlessly resourceful and being a backpacking bum. There's probably not many other vocations where you can um, test your metal every day, multiple times a day to see how relentlessly resourceful you truly can be. That sounds interesting. Is there any particular adventure or travel adventure that impacted you most than others? Sure. Yeah. I talked about those overland trips. I did one overland trip through Vietnam by 1942 Harley Davidson um, through the Mekong Delta. But I met this guy riding a bicycle from China, a Fegla, like a flying pigeon bicycle all the way to Cambodia, 1500 kilometers. And he planted a seed in my head. So I graduated from my MBA program in the Netherlands in 96. And I rode a bicycle through Africa from Nairobi to Cape Town. It was four months, um, 4,000 kilometers out of 5,000 I rode. Uh, the rest, my bike was broken or I was broken. And uh, I, um, I really got to like look deep into the porthole of my soul in that, in that adventure, just me and my bicycle and stretches of road through eight different countries in Africa. And uh, it was, it was uh, wonderful. It was miserable. It was boring. It was uh, fascinating. It was just like being an entrepreneur. So I think that, that trip was like, why are you doing it? It's like, why not? I want, I want to see what I'm made out of. So I think that's uh, that's definitely the defining trip that I did. And it also didn't make my mom very happy. So now that I have three kids, I can understand. But So among all those trips around, we were talking also before 20, 24 years ago, you came to a halt and you decided to, you stopped in China and you decided to embark on another, on another type of journey, which is the entrepreneurial one. Yeah. Why China and how that came to be? Like, why this type of journey, new journey? Yeah, so I knew I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. My dad was an entrepreneur, and I just I knew that was what I was going to do. Kind of, I have like, you know, the incurable mental disease of entrepreneurship. No, you don't. Yes, you do. No, you don't. Yes, you do. Shut up. No, you shut up. Hey, I'm on a podcast. So sorry. Yes, I definitely have that mental mental disease. So I'm like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. And then when I taught English in Prague after the revolution, I found that the environment that I really liked was this sort of like, you go from here to like here, like you can barely see my forefinger move, like in Switzerland or I don't know, in, uh, you know, in the, in, even in some parts of the U S and like, Oh, it's a big improvement. But in like Prague, you go from here to here, to here, to here, to like mm -hmm. off the charts. Right. Because it was right after the revolution and it just was like so much chaos and messiness, but lots of opportunity. So when I came to China, it was the first time it was the other overland trip. First was that more, that bicycle. Well, the first was the, the, this uh, train trip through um, Siberia. I came overland, Switzerland, Ukraine, Moscow, uh, Siberia, Mongolia, Beijing, Hong Kong, all by land, uh, 11 days. And I just wanted to do that trip that that Aussie guy talked about. Wouldn't that be fascinating? You know, you can see people's faces change and language and landscape and everything slowly change 
over a, a 30 day period, you know, going overland. And I thought, okay, China would be interesting, you know, Tang Dynasty China. This is 93. I graduated from college in 89, big inflection year, apartheid ends South Africa, the wall falls in Berlin. But China took three steps backwards. So I thought, okay, China's not so interesting as like a business destination, but as a, uh, you know, cultural, you know, just the scale of, uh, you know, the history of it. Um, but, but as soon as we rolled into China in 93, just the dragon Game of Thrones just, just grabbed me and like lifted me, lifted me up. And, um, and then the dragon and I had two kids together and then we got divorced, but you know, we're still friends. That's, that's a whole nother story. Thank you. Good night. Um, but uh, I knew China was the biggest story of our lives. Yours and mine included. I'm 53. I know you're much younger. It's still the biggest story of your life. Uh, that and the rise of AI. Um, but you know, it shows me. I didn't have to be any crazy visionary. I was just there on the ground and I could smell it. Like that Aussie guy said, you can just smell what was going to be in China. So I got my MBA and then I did the bike trip through Africa. And then 96, I showed up in Hong Kong and I spent four years there and then 20 years to the day in Beijing. And I'm writing my first book about China right now in Bali. And I'll be going back and forth at least, you know, six to 10 times a year to Beijing, same time zone in Bali, straight, straight flight North, no jet lag. And the book is called uh, at the speed of China, like at the speed of light. And I've had a front row seat at the show for the last quarter century. And China has just accelerated into the future. There is so much innovation, so much speed and the pace and pulse of change. There is unlike anything, you know, the world has ever seen. Right. So you mentioned some interesting events. Um, one of them, obviously, in China was in the 89, the Tiananmen Square event. And March, March, March 35th. Right. <laughs> can't say. I, I didn't know exact date. I know the year because that's when also my brother was born. And yeah. uh, that was a obviously interesting event. And I'm sure that in the I'm 90s, sorry, May, 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 May 35th. Yeah. June 4th, May 34th, May 35th, whatever it is. Yeah. Perfect. We'll do a fact check afterwards. No worries. <laughs> and uh, many events have changed in the landscape, also the entrepreneurial landscape uh, compared to the 90s and to the 2020s, overly uh, different than what used to be and what is now. So since mm. you've assisted firsthand uh, that change, how how it evolved? Can you also give some glimpse into the book? Because I guess you are going to talk about so the speed of change uh, that happened in China. So can you give us more insights or what? Well, I, I, I can tell. I can tell you, like, yeah, go go ahead, keep going, keep going. Sorry. What sorry. was the insider that you have assisted in terms of change then compared to the nineties and twenties and so on and so forth in China? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think if you meet somebody my age, you know, who was born in the sixties, like it's almost as if it's three generations compressed into one lifetime, like their story of their youth is closer to like my grandmother's story from rural Ireland. She was an Irish immigrant than it is from like my mother's story, even right. Who's you know born in the late thirties in, in, in Boston. And, uh, 
it's um it's fascinating how um it's really like a you know a three to one seven to one ratio in terms of terms of years how quickly it's accelerated and you know my personal story is that i came up from hong kong 99 2000 and i was in the mobile gaming space it was one of the first mobile gaming companies and there was just there's just not a lot of you know access to capital or even a lot of tech entrepreneurs in china it was you know an environment where somebody like myself could you know be successful because there's just it was just not a uh uh, competitive market but you know now to be a foreign entrepreneur in china phew, like you know, you have to have an unfair advantage as an entrepreneur in general or anything you do if you want to do well at something you have to have an unfair advantage and it's really difficult to get an unfair advantage in china As a matter of fact it's a risk multiplier as the opportunities expand the, the risks multiply even more um so yeah since my experience in the late 90s starting to do entrepreneurial ventures. I mean, things have just so rapidly evolved um, that um, now it's not copy, you know, to China, it's copy from China, where there's a lot of apps and a lot of business models and, you know, payment methods that are that are now being copied from Silicon Valley to China. And a lot of the time, most of the time I was in China, I would think, you know what, I, 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 I love the culture, I love you know, the dynamism and I love the promise of this place, but a lot of it was a little bit like promise, like China is a little bit behind in some lifestyle ways and, you know, other ways in business. And I'd go to Stockholm or New York or, you know, Tokyo and I go, oh, this place is in the future. And I have to go back to China and like every year it would get better, but it was still lagging behind. And probably five, six years ago, I would say roughly 2014, 2015, I was like, oh, China's kind of like caught up. Like at least Beijing has, the Shanghai has, right? The major cities have. Um, it feels like any other major city in the world you can get access to everything and the services are much more professionalized. And then a few years ago, like three, four years ago, then China started to accelerate even more quickly and just say, yep, we're not staying here anymore. We're going into the future. And then uh, it's so far down the road now that like nobody's catching up. Like mobile payments, China is the world's largest country in terms of population and arguably, you know, one of the oldest, if not the oldest. So you'd think, you know what, this place is going to be a laggard. There's too many people. There's too much baggage. It's not going to be able to adopt mobile payments so widely, but absolutely not the case. China is a half decade or more ahead of the rest of the world. Like cash is pretty much disappeared disappeared across the board. What, what are some of the elements that you attribute to China in being able and implement such speed in terms of change? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's the government, um, there's the um, entrepreneurial landscape, and then there's the, the users. So on the government side, you know, government's been largely hands-off in, in, in some ways. Um, and that's why there was that big kerfuffle with Ant Financial, you know, where they had to delay their IPO last month. And they also, um, you know, now they're going to be putting a lot more regulations in place. Um, but for the most part, the government has kind of let um, 
a lot of enterprises have a lot more freedom than they, than they sort of like normally would. And secondly, the entrepreneurs in China are just absolutely kick-ass. They're so um, incredibly aggressive, so incredibly competitive, so incredibly smart. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it's just fascinating. You just look at some of these individual entrepreneurs. You know, there's the famous ones like Jack Ma, from Alibaba or Pony Ma from Tencent, but, you know, there's also, you know, the founder of Pinduoduo who, you know, in five years created this company and walked away this summer, you know, with having turned it into a $40 billion enterprise publicly listed and he made $20 billion, right? I mean, that, that kind of incredible pace and pulse of change, you know, that, that's, that drives it a lot. And, you know, all of the, the virtuous cycle around that with the access to VCs and all the other, um, you know, incredible uh, um, just scale of China, the, the millions of, of, of engineers that are, uh, at, you know, uh, graduated each year. And then on the, on, the, on the user side, people are very pragmatic in China. If something works, um, you know, there's a lot of tradition and history, uh, but there's a lot of pragmatism. So people are very willing to dispense with cash and just do with, you know, do what works. Um, I've described China as like a 5,000 year old tree. The roots go deep, 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 deep into the ground, deep and wide. But the tree above the ground is moving in real time to capture sun or rain or deflect from the wind. Like, you know, it's just, uh, it's sort of like not as ex expected. It's almost supernatural in some ways. Right. Definitely also, the, as you mentioned, the allocation of uh, capital was played a really important role into um, building uh, this ecosystem where entrepreneurs uh, thrive. So in terms of mission building, if you want to enter in China or if you even want to compete in China, you have to have some kind of unfair advantage. If you had to give an advice to some entrepreneur on how to build their own unfair advantage what would that be and or how you do you even build such thing as unfair advantage sure i i i think i think there's you know there's there's i guess you know three ways i can think of i'm sure there's more you know one is to leverage china as an unfair advantage itself and take that sort of kung fu ball of power and then whoosh, push it out against the rest of the world. So go there, set up a company, leverage all the, you know, terrific engineering talent and, you know, local knowledge and, you know, absorb what's, what's happening and then copy from China and, you know, maybe China's a market, but really, you know, you're using China as an engine for the rest of the world. So that's, that's sort of an unfair way to go. Uh, secondly is, you know, for instance, in the ed tech space, there's a lot of, um, you know, Western knowledge around education practices and sensibilities that can then be brought into China. There are some good examples of companies that have been successful. Um, and then lastly, you know, technology, right? I mean, the reason why I wrote the book about China calling at the speed of China is that you can, you know, people often, you know, I, I do a lot of bridging between China and the U S and the rest of the world. And some people are tough and they're like, you know, they, they question it. They're like, you know, China didn't even build its own tech stack. Tech stack. They don't have the chips, you know. They don't have the um, all the software that everything's built on. Like, how can you call China a tech juggernaut? And like, all right, China's been really good at applying that technology, 
China's trying to build their own chips now and trying to, you know, really build their own operating systems for mobile phones and et cetera. And, you know, and like, okay, may, maybe it is, it is debatable because it's also a, you know, less a criticism of China's ability and much more about like just state of the market and scale of what's actually happening. But you can't deny the incredible speed and pace and pulse of China. That's the thing that is, um, that's absolutely true. So, um, but so if you have a tech advantage, like, you know, of course, Apple does, or, you know, these chipset, you know, manufacturers do, um, or, you know, um, you know, what, whatever industry it's across, you know, airline industry, or, you know, even, even some, you know, other, you know, software industries, it's, you know, that's a, that's a way to have a, you know, unfair advantage. But my, my philosophy with the book is that, yeah, China's moving really fast and it's really difficult to compete inside China, but you should, you should learn from China. There's a lot to be, you know, there's a lot of things people don't agree with in terms of China's political um, uh, policies. Um, and they don't have to, I'm not a political guy. That's not what I'm advocating, but you really should learn uh, what's, what's working and fully understand it so that you can leverage it yourself. Uh, let's talk about the VC world and investing in a startup, either in startups or entrepreneurs. So you yeah. are also an investor. And what I wanted to ask, uh, what are some of the principles that you yourself adopted when deciding to invest in a company or in a entrepreneur? Mm. Yeah, you know, especially the early stage stuff, it's somebody's described it as a mugs game, meaning like, you know, when you go to New York City and they're doing that, uh, um, you know, uh, three card Monty or they have the, the ball under the cups, you're moving it around. Like if you're playing that game, you've already lost, right? You're kind of a chump, you're a mug, you're going to get taken, right? And, uh, you know, I would have loved to have been the first money into Airbnb, right? hundred billion, hundred billion market cap or whatever, right? Every, everybody wants that. Um, uh, and last month I actually did a fireside chat with Fritz Demopoulos, who is the most kick-ass foreign entrepreneur in China. He's the founder of Chunar, the, um, travel site. And he's like, Fritz is like, do you remember when I told you about the idea of Chunar? And I was like, oh, you mean, uh, that coffee shop in Guomao in Beijing, where you said you were raising money at a $3 million valuation and I had money, but it was 2005 and I didn't think of myself as an angel investor. And then you sold the company for 2.7 billion. Yeah. I think, I think I remember that. <laughs> I think I remember every time I walked past that goddamn coffee shop, I think, what was I thinking? 900 X return. So yeah, I, I've, I, I've had, I've had a chance to invest in something like Airbnb, but you know, the, the, the fact is it's so, it, it's, you know, it, it, it's interesting that, you know, there's this, speaking of Airbnb specifically, there's this one investor, Chris Saka, and he invested in Uber early and he invested in Twitter early. So he has like, he has something, right? That he, he actually saw something that other people didn't see and he's a billionaire, right? Mm -hmm. But he's also quoted as telling the Airbnb founders, guys, 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 listen, not only is this a bad idea, it's a stupid idea and it's dangerous. Who are the mm. freaks 
on this two sides of this equation. I want you to come and stay in my house. And oh, yes, please let me stay in your house. Like, what's the matter? Uh, instead of Airbnb.com, let me sleep on your couch and I'll murder you in your sleep.com. Like that wasn't available, right? And, and then later he goes back and he's like, oh, you know what, guys? Mm, actually, we didn't build 400 bed hotel rooms historically. People just stayed in other people's homes along the way when they were traveling. And so great idea. Carry on. Right. So my, my point there is that like there are a few like amazing people that can see the future like Chris Saka, but he also has blind spots and most people have no idea. They have no idea. Nobody has any idea. Either, right. It's it's it, it, the, the like I said, the most likely outcome is failure. And sometimes you invest in something and become successful for a different reason that you invested in this, right? So uh, you I, you have to go back to the, the the jockey and not the horse. You have to bet on the on the on the entrepreneurs. And you know she may be you know this incredible you know founder who she can you know just um, be able to like get back up, you know, fourteenth time after she's been knocked down and like you know really really find her way forward. Right. So I, I like to invest in people that I know, and I know that they've been through some shit before. And, you know, I, I, I like to invest in some sort of industry with some sort of geographical proximity where I can have some kind of minimal, um, you know, effect on it. Try to be helpful in some ways. Like, you know, the three ways are, you know, helping them raise more money, helping them to, um, hire more people or helping them to do some kind of partnership. Right. And those are the three things that I can try to help. Right. So in terms of uh, maybe we can switch sides for a second and let's play a role of being an entrepreneur. How should a founder uh, seek an investor or someone who may put money in his own idea what are the ways to do that let's say ways to find to to reach to you for instance or some other investors what was the best practices in doing that so you know there, there's two things that, that that i um i really like um i really like mark suster s-u-s-t-e-r he's um he writes a great blog called both sides of the table He's been an entrepreneur and he's an investor at Upfront Ventures, based in LA. And he talks about uh, um, you know dots and not lines, meaning instead of being like one line to me, like "Hey, Rich, invest in me," and be like uh, "Niche or shit, ah, like I don't know you. Who who are you? Right? I just you somebody just showing up, give me money, right? It's just like it doesn't. It it just rarely works like that, you know, especially for early stage stuff, unless somebody has an incredible track record, right? And even then they wouldn't be just showing up randomly to somebody they'd be, they'd have an existing network usually. So it's about the dots about like getting to, getting to know people in the investment community, being helpful, you know, meeting with them and, you know, showing, showing your track record, doing some sort of like pre-marketing, Hey, I'm going to be raising money in three in six months or a year. You know, I'm going to keep you abreast of what I'm doing and, you know, show you that I can uh, build something. Um, without having to use a lot of money, be relentlessly resourceful. And there's another guy who I hugely admire named Fabrice Grinda, G-R-I-N-D-A. He's the founder of OLX, and he's also invested in almost 700 companies. And 
he has this great podcast called Chasing Unicorns. And I really loved uh, his, um, one of his earlier ones where he's like, you know what you need to, to, to launch a company if you have, if you have nothing? It's 25 to 50,000 US or euros. Let's just call it, let's call it 30,000 euros. And, you know, I've raised money from family and friends before, and I vowed that I would never do it again. But that was because, you know, it was a substantial amount of money and I lost it. It was my seventh startup and it tanked and it sucked because I had to tell everybody I lost 105,000 of your money. I lost 75,000 of your money. I lost whatever, right? You know, to, to many, many different people. And um, I don't ever want to have to do that again. But his idea is this, is like, all right, how about you get 30 people to give you a thousand bucks or 15 people to give you 2000 bucks, but you make sure they really have it. Um, and then you say, you know what? I'm going on an adventure. We're going to Vegas. We're going to Vegas for a long weekend and you're going to lose all your money, but we're going to have some stories and you're going to, we're going to never forget this. Right. And you're going to be able to be an angel investor and I'm going to help you establish that. And I'm going to keep you, you know, updated with everything that's going on and let's go on this adventure and build this together. Right. So I think that's a, that, that, that for me was like, huh, like that actually really is a kind of a fun way of doing it to be able to, you know, get those people on board. And even if somebody is young and kind of broke, even a thousand bucks is something that, you know, they, you know, they're, they're, they're happy to, to, and you set their expectations that the most likely outcome is failure, but I'm going to do my best. Right. So then, and then, but now, like, since I first started my own companies 20 something years ago, it was so much opaqueness and it was so expensive. You had to buy like $5,000 computers and, you had to like do your own hosting and you, you had to like buy sun servers and like go to a, get, get, get some sort of rack space somewhere. And like, now it's so ridiculously cheap to start something. Um, software is free and the, you know, hosting is pretty much free. Like if you have any traction, you can go to, you know, AWS and Google and um, also Microsoft Azure, Azure who are like all competing to like give away free hosting to early stage startups so that they can then, you know, become addicted to their crack and be their clients later. Right. And then you can join an accelerator and you can, you know, there, there, there's so many, so many ways uh, to, to get going these days. It's almost no excuse. It's really interesting. Uh, the idea, the insight of spreading the risk when you seek for investments. So instead of two or three friends allocating 10 or 20 K, maybe find 30 friends that allocate 1K each. And that's a good yeah. way to allocate, to distribute mm. the risk inside of a startup. Mm. I like this idea. So let's talk uh, another question. I was thinking while you were addressing a previous point in terms of uh, failure, what is a failure that made you most proud or at least mm. planted the seed for success to have success later on? If there is any yeah. in, from the... Well, I, I mean, I have, I have so many failures. Right? I failed more than all the people watching, listening to this podcast combined and then multiply it again, right? But I don't even, I don't even know what success is, never mind failure, because I've sold a company before and then it was the first company I started. I sold it for $40 million in cash. The company got sold for $40 million in cash, um, US. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't materially benefit from that. That's a success though, right? I guess, right? Or I've made money selling a company, but then the company gets shut down. And, you know, 
what is is that is that successful or you know i've had exits and you know maybe yeah the investors made money but i didn't make money or what you know and like failures like i don't even know like like i i think it's all it's all feedback every step of the way right you you have to look at everything as feedback and not necessarily failure and sometimes you do have to give up like i learned that with that one startup where i had to tell everybody eye to eye you know that i lost their lost their money but um i think you know startups are a vocation like it, you have to you have to take many many kick you know shots on goal to be able to to win so every step along the way you're just learning you're just it's all about learning and learning is not like oh i've finished this book i'm learned it's like my little girl learned how to walk and she cracked her head on the coffee table and you know skinned her knee on the rug like learning is painful and shitty and messy right and uh you know every every step of the way it's it's all about learning and confucius has there's this expression in chinese sunrench you know three three people walking confucius in the middle and from one person he learns what he should not do and one person he learns what he should do so that's really what you should be tallying up all the time you're just a learning machine like a startup is a learning machine and as an entrepreneur you're a learning machine and you know you have to take those learnings you know it's like a you know watching the wire where it's like there's little stories inside each season and then there's cross there's an arc in the season and there's an arc across all the seasons and a few of the seasons right so it's like oh you got to take all of those lessons and learnings and put them together and just constantly you know listen to podcasts like this and you know read books and talk to people and you know become a real um a real student of everything that you're doing and just you know like i i i had one friend who moved to china and uh his chinese became so good because how, how do you how do you learn something you have to make a whole shitload of mistakes you have to make mistakes Right? There's just like no way around making mistakes. And I think that's a problem that I meet people as they get older or they're, you know, maybe they've done really well at school. And like school is not about making mistakes. School is about doing well at grades. And people are like afraid of failing and making mistakes. Whereas this guy would be like, what the hell am I doing talking to you? I'm not going to talk to you guys who are out at a bar. And he'd like grab a bucket of beer and just sit down at a table with some Chinese people he didn't even know and be like, all right, I'm going to keep the beers flowing as long as you guys talk to me and, um, you know, correct my mistakes. He's like, I need to make 11,422 mistakes until my Chinese is really good. So I'm going to go over to that table and I'm going to make at least 100 mistakes tonight and, you know, just do that. Right. So it's like, so, so I think that's the way to look at it and not like, Oh my God, what if I fail or I'm going to fail and, it's going to, you know, make me look bad or it's all over or, you know, there's like so many failures and mistakes and just, uh, just idiot moves and really challenging events along the way. And you, you, you just, if you switch your mindset around, like I said, it's an adventure or a nightmare. You'd be like, okay, good. Next play. What did I learn? Next, next play. What did I learn? How can I make, how can I be better? tomorrow than I was today. And like, that's, that's how you become successful is with that mindset. It's not some sort of silver bullet that's going to like magically 
make you successful. You have a limited amount of lead bullets. You just have to aim them very, very carefully. And, uh, you know, there is no sort of, in, you know, there, there's a few stories in the press of people that, you know, start Instagram and they sell the company for a billion, 1.2 billion with, you know, only 15 people or something after a few years. Right. But sometimes the stars align, sometimes things really work, but most of the part, most of the time it's, it's all, all those mistakes are just a clue. Like a mistake is really basically, you know, a, uh, an indicator of like where, where you should not go. So then that helps you to actually know where you should go. And then you find your way along. And that's what a startup is too, right? Startups just, it's just a, you know, experiment didn't work. Okay. Well, that's learnings like Elon Musk's, you know, spaceship crashed last week. And he was like, woohoo, that was a successful launch because I got a lot of good data. Right. And he's quoted as saying, if you're not failing more often, then you're not trying hard enough and innovating enough. Right. So the thing is, you just got to keep moving. A lot of people are like fail a lot. Like you don't want to just, you don't want to crash the, the spaceship on purpose because you're sloppy or lazy or out, you know, partying or going to just conferences because they make you feel cool. Um, you want to crash the spaceship because so you, you can learn from it. And it's not because you were, you didn't do your best. Right. You want to push those limits, see how much it can handle and let, until it crashes and mm. how you can improve to make it less crushable over time. So uh, just one quote that just reminded me in terms of learning and success, it's a famous one from Winston Churchill. Maybe for sure you've heard about it, which to quote, um, success it's stumbling from failure from to failure or something along those lines uh, to wrap it up uh how but, can... but i think i think he, he talks specifically in that quote like you know happily or joyously right uh prob like probably the, with, yeah. yeah yeah with the right attitude like without loss just... of enthusiasm i think something like yes that. yes yes there you go there you go yes um to wrap it up uh, where can people find you and if they want to reach uh, to you, how they can do that? Yeah, I'm just here um, at my uh, uh, pool in Bali. Um, but uh, also uh, Twitter, uh, at Richard Robinson. Um, yeah, LinkedIn, you can follow me there, Richard Rich Robinson. And uh, yeah, I'm going to be, I'm starting a podcast uh, to support my, uh, my book writing. Um, and uh yeah, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be doing a lot more content creation now that I'm uh, you know detached from the day-to-day um, -day pace and pulse of of uh, of China. I can I can you know come back here, lick my wounds, and then go into you know Beijing, Shanghai for a couple three weeks, teach, work on my businesses there, you know, stay in touch, and then come back and rinse, repeat, rest. Great. Um, just a closing note. I totally applaud your idea of starting a podcast. I was listening Eric Schmidt in another podcast saying that uh, book readers are also avid podcast listeners. Mm. That's an interesting insight I found, which I found it true myself. I'm an avid book reader and also podcast listener and later on a podcast creator as well. So I love it. 
upload your idea and initiative to start a podcast and support um, the promotion of your book. as they say in Bahasa Indonesia, and grazie mille. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you very much also for joining the Founders Club podcast.